Hello and welcome to How Books Are Made, a podcast about the art and science of making books. I'm Arthur Atwell. Okay, I'm finally getting to talk about printing. And that, really, is how books are made. I mean, even in our digital world, even with all my admiration for editors and love of design, at the end of the day, the printing is where the bookmaking magic culminates. I've visited many printing shop floors over the years, and every time I return even more excited about the work I do. And if you're in bookmaking and haven't had a chance to see book printing in action, get in touch with a printer near you to arrange a tour. Printers are invariably warm, welcoming people who love to share what they do, and you will be amazed. This week, I called up an old friend, Mike Jason. I met Mike 20 years ago, when he was heading up production at Oxford University Press in South Africa. He ran training sessions for us young editors, and I remember them like they were yesterday. He and I were at Pearson together too, and have both since started our own bookmaking companies. These days, Mike runs Academic Press, which prints books for educational publishers across Southern Africa. I thought we should get Mike to talk us through the book printing process, find out about the economics of book printing and the rise of digital printing, and I wanted to revisit a magnificent art book project that I watched him manage two decades ago. Mike, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Uh, you have a, a busy time running a few companies, so I especially appreciate your taking time for this. Yeah, cool, man. I'm excited to be part of it. Hopefully I can add some value. Printing is... For me, the most magical part of bookmaking, uh, partly because it doesn't generally happen in front of me. It's this magical thing that happens. I send a, a PDF and I get back this piece of physical art, which is just amazing. But I have spent enough time in printing on printing floors to know it's a real thing that has pieces to the process. And it's super, super exciting for a nerd like me. So I hope that you can uh, talk me through a little bit. So yeah. what I wanted to kick off with was just a brief overview of what happens from the moment that I email your team a print-ready PDF to the moment that I hold a printed book in my hand. And we can do that at fairly high level and then we'll drill down to the various bits and sure, pieces sure, as we sure, go. Sure. Yeah. So I like to refer to it as the manufacturing process. Mm. And so the total manufacturing process is basically made up of, of three main stages, pre-press and then printing and then post-press. So may, many people just refer to it as the printing of the book. You know, and this is where I try to get fancy uh, with people <laughs> and say, actually, actually, printing is just one part of it. Right. But that's actually just to be more specific. So the pre-press part of it is you supply this PDF, as you call it, which is basically a composition of, of typesetting, design, graphic arts, you know, some image assembly, and then your file preparation. Hmm. So we take that. And these are checked and they run thoroughly through some software and we ensure its integrity and, of course, its readiness for the image transfer and what we call plate making. We'll get to that soon. Before we even go to any sort of manufacturing part, all we're doing is using software to check your file. 
to ensure that what you deem to be your product actually comes out on paper. Mm-hmm. In essence, we then send you a proof of what you've given us so that you can somehow sign off against it and say, I'm happy to go. Because, you know, things happen. Fonts fall off the bus and artwork mm-hmm. corrupts and those sort of things. Oh, yeah. So we iron out all of those and ensure that what you see is what you get. And that's actually a paper proof that you send us. It's actually a physical paper thing. Yeah. Well, I know that on-screen proofing happens too. Correct. By and large, I mean, and especially now, you know, COVID is going to affect just everybody's life. Mm. So currently we have a mix of clients that prefer still hard copy proof, touch and feel. Mm. And then and then there are electronic proofs. You know, we just send off an image on different sort of platforms. You can either view it on our website or we send you a, a normal pdf sure but it's important to note that it's gone through our system and is what we call post rip so once that file's ripped it's the same file that will be sent to the plate maker right that's important to know so you've okayed it we now transfer the image onto a lithographic plate and this is still done in pre-press okay so a lithographic plate is a huge sheet of metal Ours maximum size measures 795 by 1040 millimeters. Okay. It's a plate that has been prepared with a coating that when exposed to light will accept the image area, right? And it's bent onto the plate and then we wash away the non-image area. Right. So what you see on the plate is actually in right reading and is exactly as you've handed me on the PDF. The only difference is we're able to lay out multiple pages of your book on one big plate. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call section printing. So let's say your book, and I'll get you it later as well. Let's say your book was an A4 book. Mm -hmm. On our typical big press, we can get 16 of those pages on one plate, eight on the front, eight on the back. Right. Okay. So that's what we do. These lithographic plates then go to the press. And this is specific to, to offset lithography. Okay. The image is transferred from the plate to a rubber blanket and back onto the paper. Okay. All on the printing press. So the printing is then done. And then post-press would involve mainly the binding process. In most cases, we have a cover and the text. And um, the text is folded and collated and the cover is bound onto the book. And then we form a book as you would see it when you receive it in the post or mm. or your advanced copy as the publisher. <laughs> cool. And you mentioned that that process is specific to offset lithography, offset printing. Yes. And what is digital printing as opposed to offset? I'll explain it this way. Okay. So offset printing works by first transferring the image the image being your PDF now, right? Mm-hmm. The metal plate I mentioned earlier. Right. And then in the printing process, the metal plate is then inked up. Right. So the image area we spoke about attracts the ink. Mm-hmm. The non-image area will not attract the ink. Okay. So by, by then a series of cylinders, that image is transferred onto a rubber cylinder, which is called a blanket. Okay. Funny name, I know. <laughs> and then that image, which is now on the blanket, which is in wrong reading, okay, is transferred onto the paper. Okay, so let me see if I've got this. So the, the plate touches the blanket, and the blanket accepts what is effectively then a reverse image Correct. of what was on the plate, and then the blanket rolls onto the paper. So you've got this sort of soft... Blank, I like that, soft blanket. Yes. Gently touching the plate so the plate doesn't get worn down too much. Gently touching the paper so it's 
evenly, gently pressed onto the paper. So the paper receives the same image that was on the plate through this kind of reverse blanket. It's kind of a head scratcher, but it's brilliant once you click. Absolutely. You got it spot on. And so, and so therefore the term offset. So it's not direct. Uh-huh. It's offset by the blanket. Gotcha. Okay. So previously, the printing process prior to um, the introduction of offset would have been something called like letterpress printing, mm. right? So you see those old Heidelberg presses that used to chunk and chunk around. Right. And that, that image used to be wrong image, but it went directly onto the paper. Okay. That goes all the way back to Gutenberg, right? Because essentially he, he was creating little metal letters and they would press onto the paper. Correct. But of course, the quality and what you could do with it was, I mean, suitable for the day. In offset printing, um, one of the biggest advantages is the variety, the variety of stocks. In other words, paper uh-huh. and substrates one is able to use. It's, it's more economical for larger print runs. Okay, so we're talking like a thousand books and up. Correct, a thousand books and up. And we'll get to that later as well, Arthur, because it's become quite a, a tussle between uh, digital printing and offset printing in mm. terms of what is that break-even point. I think it largely depends on the number of pages in the book. Right. Because... A thousand books of only 16 pages could still be uh, affordable in a digital format. So the setup costs are a bit higher because of what I've told you. You have to get the plate made. Mm. You have to get put the plate on the machine and get it prepared and run through a couple of sheets. Right. And it's a big machine on a big factory floor. It is a big machine. But those higher costs are absorbed once the print run gets going. Mm. So it will almost dilute a unit cost if you were doing a thousand copies and now when you push it to two thousand copies that unit cost becomes less mm. because the quantity is absorbing those setup costs sure and and that's why the offset and lithographic method is used for for larger print runs right these machines also run at tremendous speeds the new machines really new machines can average at like fifteen thousand sheets an hour wow when I when I did my apprenticeship, FOST was two and a half thousand sheets an hour. So it's a blur. It's a complete blur. The, the printing press at that speed is a blur. Um, and 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 today in today's top press rooms, those are standard. Okay. And then the other advantage of the offset presses, as we've mentioned earlier, is the size of the press, mm-hmm. because. I mean, obviously, the more pages you can impose on one big sheet, right. the more economical it is in terms of how many impressions have to go through the books. So, so as I said to you earlier, typically an A4 book, let's keep stick with A4, can be imposed mm-hmm. on a large sheet, and that gives you eight pages on the front. And then we reverse that sheet, okay. and we print the other eight pages on the back. Now, almost all the presses that we have on our shop can do both sides of the sheet at the same time. Ah. So it goes through the press and does both sides. It's in printer's term that's called perfecting. Okay. As in finishing. Yes. Right. So gotcha. coming out of the other side of the press is a sheet printed both sides with 16 pages of your book now complete. Right. Let's say you had a book, author's uh, cookbook, mm-hmm. and it was A4 and it was 160 pages. Okay. So the first 16 we would do, and that would be called section number one. Okay. Once that's done, we do the other nine sections to equal your 160 pages. Gotcha. 
So in this case, you have 10 sections that you need to complete. And depending on the quantity, let's use say I want 500 of these. We do 500 plus some overs of those in order to take all of that to the binary process. Right. So the digital press works by, by transferring the image directly onto the paper. Okay. There are no plates. There are no plates. Okay. okay. So think, think of your, your typical desktop printer. Okay. Except this is a high-end production type machine. Okay. It's like a massive laser printer. Typically the size of a queen-size bed. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Right. And, and, and there's a myriad of functions. It's really, these are super-duper machines. Yeah. And the key difference, of course, is, if you recall, when we used to do photocopying, mm-hmm. right, back in the old days, you needed to have used hard copy. Okay. So digital means you don't have to use hard copy. You're just using an original file in whatever format. Gotcha. Right? It could be a PDF. It could be a Word doc. It could be an Excel. Okay. So you send that electronic file for full output. Right. There's very little intervention with pre-press, although there could be. There are no plates. The distinct difference, of course, is that it's a much smaller machine. Mm-hmm. So our machines, and typically most common um, digital presses, accommodate only an A3 size page. Okay, so no big sections. No big sections. So now think of it. Now your 160-page book, one is only able to do four pages at a time. So two on the front, two on the back. Okay. So now, now your book, which was 10 sections and the litho is now 40 sections in digital. Okay. So there's a lot more time to go through the press. That's interesting. Okay. However, the economies of scale would probably favor you if you wanted to do only 10 copies of your cookbook. Right. Because I don't have to go through all the hassle of setting up the plates and the machine and everything. Absolutely. So it's not cheaper, but it's, it's more expensive per unit, mm-hmm. but it's cheaper in the overall cost. Gotcha, for those small runs, yeah. Correct. So typically, if and I, I, it's probably a bad example, but if you were doing that book, Litho Offset, and you wanted 1,000 copies, I'd charge you 20 rand per book. Okay. Okay? 1,000 copies, that's 20,000 rand. Right. But if you only wanted 10 copies, I'd probably be charging you 2,000 rand in total. Yeah, so that's like 100 rand a copy. Correct. The difficulty, of course, for... A person like Arthur who now wants to sell that book is mm. if we did it litho, his actual unit cost for producing the book is only 20 Rand. So it just depends on the price point and at what point is digital uh, more cost effective for the publisher or in this case the author. And I know that one of the concerns with digital, certainly in its early years, was that the color reproduction just wasn't as good as lithographic. So you wouldn't want to use it for a photography book or with something with, where the pictures really matter. Is that still a concern? Uh, and is it something that's changing? So, so yeah. So digital print is, as we say, suited for shorter run publications. And, and mm-hmm. currently the strides made in technology is actually quickly closing the gap on offset. Okay. But the choices of paper is limited. And then, as you rightly say, print quality is still one of the, the negatives. Mm-hmm. Okay, Although there are strides being made at the moment, especially with what we call inkjet technology, okay. whereby there is, a, there is a catch-up to offset, but certainly not for your high-end, as you say, coffee table uh, photography type books. Mm. Yeah. I certainly wouldn't prescribe 
inkjet or digital mm. for those sort of um, publications where they're really high end. The the other advantage, of course, on on digital is the added advantage of variable data. Okay. So a typical example, I could print um, 200 wedding invitations for you, and all of them could be personalized. Okay, so something is changing with every sheet. Every sheet going through, and we don't stop the press. It's all pre-programmed. So when it comes out on the other side, each of the 200 wedding invitations could have your guest's name and a special message tailored for them only. Right, yep. So thinking about the offset and the LIFO process, that's impossible to do Mm. because you'd need to change the plate 200 times. So typically, if you needed to do those um, 10 cookbooks. Yeah, maybe you've got different sponsors and each sponsor wants a different piece of the print run or something. Yeah, There you go. And then, of course, the turnaround times are much quicker. Right, because there's not not all that pre-press setup. You can get it in and out pretty quickly. Absolutely. So, you know, in a nutshell, the, those are the, the, in essence, the differences. The one's just the big machine that runs the longer runs, and the other one is in a smaller room. And think of, as I call it, the big fancy production type photocopy machine. So the holy grail, of course, of digital printing is a single copy at a reasonable price. And I know that that's something that in a smaller market like South Africa, no one can really pull off yet. But in the bigger centers, the UK and and the US, obviously, and some other places, companies like Lightning Source have managed to get that single copy digital price really, really low so that mm. you can get true print on demand, which is where the customer orders the book on, say, Amazon, and Amazon orders the book kind of directly from the printer, and the printer prints a single copy. But obviously, you've got to get massive economies of scale. You've got to get a huge number of books moving through your presses to make that possible. Do you imagine that's something that could happen in South Africa, or are we just going to be too small for that to be reasonable? At the moment, and, and, and it's not new, it's certainly not in its infancy in South Africa, but let's call it five years old, okay, since, since introduction okay. Of, of this inkjet technology, which has been used far more effectively than straight old digital printing. So the old digital printing, as you and I know it, is still toner-based, okay, where they literally plonk this um, big fat uh, cartridge into the machine, Mm-hmm. And it and it literally prints from this toner-based um, ink. So the ink is actually in a liquid form. Okay. And the ink is sprayed by via these minute jets. Interesting. Onto the substrate. Okay. Now, and I'm getting to your point, but this technology costs, mm. and it is prohibitively expensive. I mean, to go the full hog on a full inkjet line, which has been utilized by these international players, as you mentioned earlier, is prohibitive. So the the barrier to entry is only for the big boys. If you need to justify this sort of investment, you need this thing running 24-7. For sure. And that's what would bring the price points down. Yeah, I remember a conversation with someone at Lightning Source saying that, I hope I'm not misquoting them, that they needed a million books a year to justify one line. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I'm absolutely, absolutely convinced of it. So companies who have invested in that now, it's not a case of let me build it and see who knocks on the door. You've got to have contractual obligations in place Mm. in order to justify the sort of investment Mm. because it literally has to be running 24-7. 
The other downside to it is that most companies who have invested in South Africa only have one line, okay? And when I say line, it's the printing and the finishing is all in line. Okay. So literally, the book pops out on the other side of, of, of this, this manufacturing process. Right. And by line, it's literally like the machines all in a line on the floor and you could stand at one end of the line and see the book come out. Absolutely. But once you have a jam or a breakdown or any sort of technical glitch, you're holding back a million books, as you say, mm. in the back of the queue. And you have no other alternative. Mm. I've got three other presses I can run to if I do have a breakdown of some sort. Right. I see us still behind in terms of the, the more advanced economies of the world, mm. but it will come. It will come. Yeah. There are customers of ours right now who have programs which they call print on demand. The numbers are may not maybe not as small as you've suggested earlier, but instead of instead of them, and let me give you a typical example, instead of them having to justify a minimum print run of let's say five hundred of a teacher guide, they now do fifty books, but they can do it ten times a year. Right. And so the focus there is not purely on cost only, Arthur. It's also on stockholding and inventory mm, because right. they'd rather have that money sitting elsewhere and invested elsewhere as opposed to just dead stock sitting in a well mm. and they wait for a full year or two years to sell 500 copies. Yeah, interesting. One of the things that's interested me is where book paper actually comes from because I know that as a publisher, we get to choose between a certain number of papers and it's influenced by availability. Yeah. What does availability mean? Where do you get your papers and how does one, how does one choose? The customers we do 80% of our work for choose mainly what, what you and I known as bond paper. Mm -hmm. It's a strikingly white wood-free paper. The kind of thing we put in our home printers. Correct. Now, I mean, just generally speaking, the world's largest producer of paper is China. Outright. Okay. China produces the most paper out of any of the countries in the world. Then the Asia-Pacific region dominates the sector for the globe. So, as I say, China, Japan, South Korea, India to a degree, the USA, Brazil, also key players. We, we in fact, have some improved supplies coming out of the Middle East now, right? Okay. So, so that whole Emirates area mm. is doing quite well because they've got more money than anybody <laughs> can understand. <laughs> and, and then the European players are still key, but they supply mainly the high-end stuff, like the, the real coated papers and the specialist papers that you see in some publications for some of the art books and some of, as you said earlier, the photographic books where, mm. you know, it's highly specialized. A coated paper is a paper that has essentially got a, some kind of coat on it. I assume it's some kind of varnish that means that the ink sits right on the paper and doesn't sink in. And so you get a sharper line. Is that a fair description? So, so the, the paper has a base and you're quite right. It's coated or what we call calendered. So it has this it looks like a sheen to you and I. Mm. What then happens is, and I'll and I'll try and um, explain to you the difference between that and an uncoated paper. So the uncoated paper, think of typically, as you say, the, the copy paper we put in our machines, which has no coating. And because when the ink is applied, the ink is still wet. On the uncoated stock, 
it will be absorbed to a degree. So it will actually filter into the grains of paper. But on a coated stock, it literally sits on top. Mm. And that's why when you look at the two, it looks classier, it looks more quality because there's no absorption. And now it looks ex- absolutely crystal clear in terms of the image. Of course, it costs more mm. and, and less of it is made around the world because the demand is less and that's why it's quite um, pricey. So in essence, that's the difference between the two. And then you get various grades of those as well. That is not to say that uncoated paper is cheap because think of a typical best-selling novel, novel at the moment that is typically printed on quite a bulky off-white paper, Right. Yeah, and the, and the paper's got a grain, and it looks really classy, and mm. but that stuff expense uncoated, but it's prohibitively expensive. Right, right. I mean, it could be one and a half to double the price of ordinary old wood flute. Which is why textbooks generally aren't printed on that kind of paper. Textbooks go for absolutely bargain basement bond or or, or something cheap, even cheaper. Yes. So we also have to ensure that our paper is ethically sourced. Uh-huh. Okay. So we get certification from the makers and the resellers that our papers are, are ethically sourced and that we look after the planet. That comes at a cost. And then for any sort of literary work, it's about opacity as well. I mean, who wants any sort of book where you can see right through? Mm. And so those quality issues need to be addressed when, when, we, when we source paper. And then price, of course, is um, is important. There are also the two local um, suppliers of paper and makers, which are Sappy and Mondi. Right. Sappy have largely um, they largely have gone into the export market, so not a lot of their locally made paper is available to us. Interesting. But Mondi is a big player. The problem we have that companies of our size we have very limited access to their bulk manufacture. Because they prescribe certain minimum um, uh, orders per month. Okay, you've got to buy X tons of paper for them to be interested. Absolutely. So their paper we would generally then get from local suppliers or retailers would then sell onto us. They take the risk and the warehousing and give us a, a good enough deal. And so we'd buy locally. We do, however, source a, a smaller percentage of our paper directly from the molds in China and in the Middle East. Hmm. But of course, there we are just we just at the mercy of the exchange rate. Uh-huh. So, you know, asking me to do a budget or in fact, trying to sit down with my customers to predict what paper is going to cost me in six months time is just a thumbsuck of note. And if I haven't pegged my purchase in terms of uh, a dollar rate at the time, I'm stuffed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, but you know we don't um, we don't speculate, and so once we've deemed to have got a good price, we buy and and get on with it. Who does all these calculations? When I ask as a publisher for a quote, someone's got to figure out what's the paper going to cost, what is the ink going to cost, how much machine time am I going to need? Now that role is usually called an estimator. They must be juggling a hell of a lot. It's actually a formal um, qualification that one goes through. So the estimator, I mean, it's quite self-explanatory, plays a critical role in the business, right? Mm-hmm. In that it is um, that person's responsibility is to just churn out these quotations. And the quote, as you see it, is an, is an outcome of an estimate. And the estimator, mainly nowadays, they use software, uh, note, 
when I started out, everything was done by hand. You know, today, if I were recruiting for an estimator, you don't need to be an Einstein. You need to be, I mean, speed is just non-negotiable. Right, yeah. Speed is non-negotiable. You have to be fast. You have to be thorough. And orderliness Mm. is is the order of the day. You can't jump around. A quote needs to be done in a specific way, and it needs to be done that way every time. So, I mean... I was a half-decent estimator, I think, and I was useless at math. Um, (laughs) But I think, you know, when you're logical and you're thorough and you do it right the first time, those are the qualities of of a a damn good estimator. But riding on that is the technical knowledge one has to have Mm -hmm. of all the processes that, that go into, for example, in our case now, bookmaking. Um, So you have to have the technical knowledge, you have to have been on the print floor. None of this can be done with just a theoretical training. It's impossible. And then those that are on the print floor minding those machines, what does it take to become a machine minder, someone who actually runs the big press? So in the past, it took three years of an apprenticeship, which consisted of um, theoretical training mm-hmm. uh, via an, an accredited institution. And that would result in a diploma. But that then run, ran concurrent with practical training right. and, and guidance in the press room. So typically, you would work with a qualified machine minder for that three-year period. And while you're doing your practical and theories, you apply all of that. And then you have to do a formal trade test. It's still required nowadays and is normally conducted by an independent specialist. Hmm. And that person would, yeah, that person would act on behalf of a recognized um, industry association. So in our case, it's Printing SA. Okay. And so the person goes through this formal apprenticeship and then they say, okay, you're ready for your trade test. And you need to pass that and pass it well. And then you get this uh, accreditation that you're a machine minder. And machine minders nowadays, let's say, uh, give you five years from passing your treatise, five years of thorough press room experience. These are very well-paid individuals. And, and good machine minders are sought after in our industry. They're, they're not roaming the streets. <laughs> it's, it, it's clearly an art, having watched a few at work. And, and they are the envy of, of the greater uh, printing environment. They, they work hard, and obviously shifts are required in certain cases, mm. but they are well, well, well rewarded. Fascinating. Now, casting my mind back, I remember many years ago, you and I worked, well, I wasn't directly involved. Mostly, I watched you work on a photography book by David Goldblatt called The Structure of Things Then. And I'm sure you started going gray during that project because that was that was high-end art printing. And I seem to believe the printing was done in Italy, but you were overseeing the production process. Do you remember that? And uh, yes. I just learned a lot from you. Yes. How could I forget it? How could I forget it? What an experience. <laughs> Actually, it was printed locally. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, is there, there was, I think there was a co-edition in Italy. That was, that's what I was thinking of, something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was printed locally. So... Only in hindsight. I mean, imagine managing a, a, a photographic publication of a man who had an individual exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. I mean, this was mind-blowing stuff. Right. And and you are ultimately responsible for putting this damn thing into a publication. And David, I mean, David Goldblatt, as you may know, 
he was he was the probably the ultimate master of of black and white photography. Mm. So that should have made the book easy to do, <laughs> but actually it wasn't. So I'm not sure uh, Russell Jones of the Scan Shop. I'm still friendly with him today. He did the repro, and it was high end stuff. And David insisted that all the makeup and all the pictures would be done in two colors. Interesting. Okay. And in some cases, we even had two blacks. Wow. Right? Plus this color, and I forget the name, but it was a specially made up ink. And it was a, a kind of greeny gray. <laughs> so all these, all the pictures were made up in black, black, and this stony gray. Amazing. It was magnificent in terms of the, the, the finish. But of course, managing that on the press was an absolute nightmare. But luckily, you know, David was very dedicated to this book. And um, he color passed every single page and section on the press. Amazing. So he's standing there as the page standing paper is coming off the press. And whilst I had a day job, <laughs> I was with him as well. And sometimes throughout the night. I remember it was done at ABC Press. We did a really good job. <laughs> and I remember it well. I mean, I had a three-year-old. <laughs> And my wife was pregnant, and I had David Gilblatt on the other side. <laughs> and he was, a, he was a hard taskmaster. Mm. I mean, it, it, look, it was his baby. And, I mean, it gives me immense pride to have been involved. I mean, I, I think I may have fallen short of some of his required standards at the time. <laughs> but um, David was, of course, kind enough to acknowledge me in the book. I have a copy at home. Lovely. Uh, but that was high-end stuff. It was high-end stuff. Oh. Uh, once in a lifetime, probably, that one gets to uh, mm. be involved in a project of that nature. Um, but as for going gray, um, <laughs> I don't think I had any hair left after that. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, there's so much we could have got into that we haven't had time to. So I hope maybe we can have another conversation at, at some stage. I'd love to talk more about binding and finishing, um, get more into the nerdy detail of the actual printing process while standing there at the press what is happening so uh, hopefully you and i can chat again on the podcast before too long absolutely i look forward to it and uh hopefully by that time not too much has changed so we have to change the story okay <laughs> hope not <laughs> thanks mike cheers Arthur. bye and thank you for listening please subscribe and it would be such a help if you tell a friend about the show also don't forget to send us your own bookmaking topics and conundrums at howbooksaremade.com, where I'll also post links to things we talked about today. How Books Are Made is supported by Electric Bookworks, where my team and I make books all day, every day, in sunny Cape Town, South Africa.